I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hello and welcome to FFS. I'm David Colfard, humble former ah. motor racing driver. Ah, no one believed a word of that. <laughs> and with me, as you can hear, the noise in the background, the growler, a man uh. of much higher social standing. He's pals with billionaires, probably is one, uh, celebrities, he definitely is one, royalty, I'm sure he's got a wee bit of blue blood in him somewhere. He is Mr. Edmund Patrick Jordan. O-B-E. Hey, how did I get that L-B-E as an Irishman? You blagged it for sure. Probably, yeah. Anyway, let's go on. Hello, everybody. David, lovely to be here again. Great, great, great summer. UK is wonderful and uh, sport is brilliant. It is indeed. And you're still a man of the people. So I saw you at Silverstone a couple of weeks ago. You were there with your adoring crowd. Oh, David, why are you so nice? I hate you when you go on with this crap. Look, People who didn't know you, you took the time to stop and explain, show them pictures of yourself in the past. I did. Um, you don't have to do that because pictures. you're actually the president there. They, they, you like walk on water. I, there was a, it used to be another person who used to do things like that. But that's uh, you're fairly close to God, aren't you? I mean, you walk on water. You're like a total celebrity, twice winner of the British Grand Prix. I mean, you're an icon. My uh, PR agent, Mr. Eddie Jordan. Ah, thank, you. <laughs> thank you. Well, look, last week we were uh, live for our podcast at Silverstone, and uh, the British Grand Prix is basically a week-long event, so we didn't really get that much time to talk, EJ. We were in the campsites at the BRUC, just inside the circuit. A number of the drivers were staying there. I saw you lined up at one point for autographs with all your favourite drivers. Uh, but what yeah. else were you up to? Look, um, we did uh, a lovely, really nice, uh, entertaining. Uh, and, and, you know, I, I thought it was uh, in touch with the people. When we're doing these podcasts and we're sitting across each other, but when you're doing it in front of forty and 50,000 people, it's kind of a different show. And you have to think about it differently. And you have to make sure that it's, it's, it's a different kind of entertainment because the people are there to see you to hear what you're talking about, no matter how much rubbish you're actually saying. And I'm talking about myself here. But the reality is that I thought that was a spectacular event and I think we should look at doing some more of them. Well, it was definitely, there's a different feel, isn't there, when you're doing live versus a recording. You know, right now, you, you could uh, drop all your profanity and we can just edit it out. But when you do that you live on stage... you wouldn't allow that to happen. I know what you're like, <laughs> so I won't do that. Edi editing you out in front of a live audience was a bit more difficult. But I just want to touch on that because when was it when you kind of started the, the F1 after party here? I remember in the old Silverstone pits... I don't know where one of your trucks or something. You you, you got it in the back of the uh, the paddock, got the band up there, dragged myself and Damon and Johnny and whoever else that was was around, and entertained 
the paddock with that. And that's sort of grown into where so we've... that's where it happened. I know. And then well, we've... very proud about that. Well, now they've had Jess Glynn, they've had Calvin Harris, they've had, you know, Black Eyed Peas. Uh, who else was we performing? We had Texas only last year. You and yeah. I performed on stage with. Yeah. So you, you, you must be on getting a tickle on that, you know. Uh, I'm on a tickle on everyone except from you. Uh, there's no... I've never had a touch from you. I don't do you. bribes. I've never had a touch from you. Have you ever squared me away for any deals I brought you? I've said thank you. Oh, yeah. Well, you know, words are very pleasant, but cash is always nicer. <laughs> <laughs> right. Um, you've done some charity when you mentioned cash. You do a lot for charity. Um, you've got your Amber um, Foundation event coming up later in the year, which helps people get back on their feet when they've had difficult times. And there's been some other notable charity you've been involved in you were did you do the grand prix ball pre-silverson this year i did that's the grand prix ball that's a fundraiser I've, and then some other bits and pieces and then so i had the band playing there and and uh, i did an evening i did an evening for a th new little charity which is building small little schools and and uh, if you like classrooms etc in, in a place called kenya who had just happened don't ask me how i came involved with it but uh, luca and i we played in covent garden on on the wednesday night before silverstone and we played a couple of gigs there so that was really nice actually talking about charity i think it's appropriate because a couple of weeks ago we had the marchioness on um emma but i'd, I'd kind of only after hearing her on the podcast, I realized how she and a couple of the other young girls inside Click, which is Cancer, Leukemia and Children, how much work they did to raise. I mean, that was a huge amount of money we raised, which is 11 million pounds to build those uh, new homes opposite the UCLH, the University College Hospital in, in London. Uh, and they were all provided by very generous donations and donors and stuff. But actually, Emma was Fantastic. one of the key girls. So let's not forget that there's a lot of these people we see them doing modeling and this and that and the other but behind that there's something really steely so determined and so committed to life as a human and she was brilliant well it's uh, yeah i guess people look at beautiful you know model uh, turned marchioness through through her marriage and would think that they're just getting on with their own selfish lives. But a lot of people are doing a lot of good things to and help others less back. fortunate. It's so good. Uh, it gives you some confidence in the future. And I see, particularly the young kids, look, I'm in the very much twilight of my years and, and I see lots of grandkids running around the place. And, I, and that is my wish, that they are aware of what's happening around them, both, both the climate, both the society, both the world. And it is our obligation to make sure that we leave this world in a better place than when we came in. To it. And I think if we apply that logic all the way through life and teach and help people who are much younger to understand that logic, then we have a good chance. EJ, beautiful words. And at this point, I'm actually, I, I don't even feel like taking the piss out of you. <laughs> I don't I, believe a word of that I, either. <laughs> I, I, I just have admiration. Anyway, right. We're in the UK recording this week. And as well as Silverstone, you've got to say we're enjoying a great summer over here. The weather has been absolutely brilliant in between yeah, the rain. We've, we've had Wimbledon, we've had the ashes going on, the open starts, I think, today. And of course, in music, there was the great Glastonbury. And, I uh, always imagine that you're going to sort of steal your way onto the stage. Well, well, that would be one of my all-time bucket list requests. Yes, I played up in your place. I played tea in the park, and I played, obviously, at the Isle of Wight Festival. I played a lot of different wildernesses and various different things. There is nothing quite like the life of what uh, a weekend uh, rock festival is like. I, I, I got such an amazing buzz out of it. 
But sadly, Glastonbury has always eluded me because they've always wanted the top and the cream, and I've never been able to rise that far up the glass. So, uh, and actually, there's a couple of things that came to mind, and I thought Elton John was just simply fantastic. You know, I was always skeptical. You know, was he going to be any good? And then when Paul Paul McCartney, I, I, that wasn't a good show, but I think Elton was amazing. And then one of my all-time heroes was you know T for the Tillerman. I don't know, you're far too young to remember T for the Tillerman, but that was Cat Stevens uh, when that came out, and that must be about 60 years old as an album. It was one of the greatest albums of all time, folks. You have a listen to that, and then you realize what real music is like. Just one man singing his songs, writing the songs, and, and, and performing them. And he did that. Okay, his voice is clearly not as good as it was. He's in his 80s now, I would imagine. And um, he was spectacular. But my little story is about somebody who was there, and it was a different kind of a story because it comes from the completely opposite end of the, the, the age group. And uh, he was probably one of the youngest performers there. And uh, David, are we going to talk about my guest for the weekend? Well, I'd love to. You've teed it up perfectly. So, you know, it's time for the EJ celebrity story. And it's uh, someone that you, you, you mentioned there touched you um, and a lot of people with his performance. Well... I and he's a buddy of yours, of course. Well, he is a buddy of mine. Well, I don't say he's a buddy of mine. I'll tell you how the story starts. He says he's a buddy of yours. No, that's bullshit. But anyway, he's a nice guy. The reality is, you know, when you have sons and they're in, in their 30s and one heading for four, and they say, come on, Dad, we go for a few pints. And I said, oh, that's always nice to go out with your kids uh, for an afternoon. And I like early drinking. So he said 5.30. Zach said 5.30 and, and then Killer arrived. And we were having these pints in the Toucan, which is a famous old Irish pub at the back of Soho. And um, I, I see Killer coming back with these pints under his arms. And he's got this guy, shorter guy, similar size to me, uh, long hair. And I don't know. He's like, who's that? And I hadn't a clue. I hadn't a clue. And he said, come on, Dad, you must know who that is. I said, I thought you were a rock and roller. I said, well, I don't know who he is. He said, that's Lewis Capaldi. I said, come on. You muppet. I, I did not know Lewis Capaldi. <laughs> Glasgow boy. <laughs> anyway. He could not have been nicer. And I was kind of taken back by the ease uh, and, and just the general humane ability of the guy to integrate with people that he didn't know who were much older than him. And sometimes that's an art in itself to try and find that position for yourself. Anyway, we chatted and things, and, and I'd had a couple of pints, and I said, look, I'd had enough of this. So at about 6.30, 7 o'clock, I decided to go to probably one of my favorite restaurants in London, which is Little Italy, opposite Ronnie Scott's. And, um, it's over two floors, it's isn't absolutely it? absolutely. Fantastic it's venue, fantastic. actually. Anyone in London Anyone. can check it out. Other restaurants are available, <laughs> but this one has you got see, a picture I am of EJ not on in the, the window. Here, by the way. <laughs> you must be a shareholder. <laughs> anyway, Luigi in there is so accommodating. And, and I didn't actually, I just said to the lads, my sons, uh, look, I, I'm going off to have something because I was going to play later on at nine o'clock with Luca in Covent Garden uh, at our little show uh, that I do for mainly for charity. But anyway, I uh, went to the restaurant and of course, these, as you call them, Muppets, any son, anyone who has kids out there, they always love the free dinner. And so they rather than go off and find a restaurant on their own, they came and blagged the dinner from dad in Little Italy. And uh, in we went, of course, uh, Lewis joined us, and there was a lot of other tables, younger girls coming from the offices, this, that, and the other. And then, you know, it's half six, seven o'clock. The place was electric. Everyone's on the table. Everyone was singing songs. And I remember Lewis singing, we, we sang Simon and Garfunkel songs, and I was on the spoons. And then he wrote me a note afterwards to say, 
you are my spoon player on my next album. And that really went down very well. He's suddenly, I'm his biggest hero. Yeah, well, you know, it, well, as as we all know, I think, and I'm sure our listeners were were educated in the art of spoon playing when they were at school, that you, to, for him to single you out of all of the great spoon uh, players well, of the world. We have to get it up on the website or something, his remark to me, because yeah. I was actually taken back. By because, you know, what's the um, what's that other spoon player's name? Um you know what? I don't know anyone else who plays the spoons. <laughs> you are such a fibber. Anyway, the reality is that um, the guy was so taken back in the restaurant that he wouldn't let us pay the bill, which is the only reason I went there. But uh, <laughs> <laughs> I thought there was a ton. Yeah. So anyway, but there was a condition. Lewis was so magnanimous. He said, no, that's not true. I have to pay. He, and he wouldn't take any money. He said, well, I'll tell you what I'll do. I'm going to order two really nice, expensive bottles of red wine which he did, but I'm paying for them. And they agreed to that. That's so fantastic. that was the trade-off. See, and I thought that was magnanimous. I thought that, I would never do that. But you'd never have done that. No, You're just too tight. Absolutely. <laughs> anyway, Every he, pound is a prisoner, yeah, as well, far as you're I know, concerned. Well, it sounds like Lewis is at, at risk of giving Scots a good name, you know, if he's paying bills left, right, and centre. But when we were sort of talking about the, the show beforehand, that one of the things that really touched you about his performance most recently was... He has mental health issues. He's spoken very openly about yeah. that. You've got to admire that, that he's out I, there. Look, young man. Young kids, whether they're footballers, whether they're motor racing people, whether they're rugby players or whatever, we've all got our different little trials and tribulations to think about and upbringing. And sometimes it's a lot of pressure and sometimes it's a lot, sometimes it's good. But um, you can see clearly, uh, Lewis is a man who has the most enormous talent and must have been pulled here, there and everywhere to do various things. And, you know, he, he has copiously come out at saying that, you know, he, he has done too many tours. He's done too many uh, functions and evenings and the pressure to perform on, at that level must be massive. And it's not just that. It's not like us having a chat here about a podcast he has a whole group maybe of a hundred people behind him trying to arrange this truck and turn up for that television and this it becomes really difficult so i think he's under pressure yeah. and he's come out and said that and do you think is the pressure um because i haven't really you know i haven't watched his documentary which apparently yes. is brilliant where he really is open about it so maybe you can you know shed some light for me as well as our listeners is it the pressure that means that during songs he, he stops singing because the crowd pick up? Or is it just because he's overwhelmed that the crowd hit all the high notes and, and carry the song for him? I, I haven't really fully understood. Well, I think if you talk about Glastonbury, let's just touch on that for a second. What happened, I think he was concerned about his own voice. He'd played far too many gigs and there was a bit of concern about where he was able to get to and where he not. And of course, Glastonbury is, for most people, is, you know, the jewel and the crown. It's, yeah. it's the bucket list for yeah. most artists. They'll all tell you that. And I'm sure he was no different. So uh, he was performing. But actually, it turned so much in his favor because every single person there knew each and every word of the lines of the song and they sang it for him and they sang it brilliantly. And he was just sitting there with his hand or standing there with his hand on the top of the microphone and he didn't sing a word and he just looked, at, gazed out into the crowd and you could see the emotion fill in his face and just 
sheer joy on one side, but the sheer disappointment that he wasn't able to sing with them, but at the same time, the adoration that the crowd had for him. The pressure on him must be something outrageous. So well, I, I wish know. him, and I'm sure yeah. you're the same, we both wish you, Lewis, if you happen to be listening to our podcast, and hopefully we are, if not, we're going to send it to you, um, <laughs> because uh, I'm your man for the spoons, and by the way, there is no better than the two of us here to uh, extend our absolute love and admiration for you. We adore you, what you do for the people. Entertainment is so special. God bless you, man. So it's been a while since we've really dug into our bag of questions from our loyal listeners. Well, you know, we are the fastest growing podcast. But you said that last week and you said it was a lie. It still is. No, I just said that just to wind you up. It's unbelievable. It's, it's actually surprising that there hasn't been some sort of must crashing be, of the system must be as you. people rush to download our podcast. But anyway, so... For, That's it, all down to you, DC. You know you're an absolute hero. No, they, they tune in because they've heard that, you, you know, you're, you're a bit... I lie crack. a lot. And uh, yeah, exactly. You make up stuff. But anyway, right. Uh, let's get one of our, our questions from uh, our listeners. And this one is from a Sean Massey. Sean Massey, that sounds kind of Irish. But anyway, so uh, hi, David and EJ. I discovered your podcast while in Holiday and Roads and I'm binging through them all. My 18-year-old daughter loves it, but she's a Ferrari fan, so what does she know? So my question is based on the acceptance that the last few races have definitely had their moments, but the P1 position was never in doubt. So if you could introduce one new rule or design change that would create a more varied outcome at the top of the positions, what would it be? Probably find anyone with the name Max. <laughs> <laughs> but send send Max on an extended holiday for yeah. about six weeks or six races, and he'd still come back and win by four races. Yeah. Um, look, I can understand that Max is in an absolute class of his own at the moment, but it doesn't last forever. It never does. But however... I have a little idea, but, you know, the FIA and, and, and the organizers are never going to do it, and it happens in horse racing, and it's called handicapping. And I think that if Max was to win so many races that he maybe should carry three kilos extra for every race he wins just to sort of see if we can even it out, because... It cannot be manufactured, it cannot be artificial, but at the same time, we need excitement. The television, when you turn on the television, you want to have a real chance that somebody else might win. Yeah, I, I totally get it. I totally, and having lived through, you know, the Schumacher era you talk about, you know, I found myself singing the German national anthem yeah. in the shower one morning because I was so used to listening to it when I was standing on the podium. Well, you had, you had more than a few bumps with him. But yeah. anyway, that's another story. Yeah, so when you get periods of dominance, if you're a fan of Max, you're loving it right now. If you're a fan of Lewis, you won't be enjoying it. But Lewis had his run as well. And it is interesting that the exceptional drivers, could, they're all good drivers, but there's been a few exceptionals, saying, as, you, as, you, as you mentioned. These guys find the dominant cars, and it usually gives them that opportunity to add multiple titles. The only one that probably hasn't who's exceptional is Alonso. We've he's, always said that because he, we, yeah. we believe he went for the money. But he, he's changed now. There is a great philosophy. It's like what you always said in the last previous programs, and the stopwatch never lies. But also, similarly, the great drivers always wind up in the best cars. Explain that to me, David. You, you, you were there. Why did you wind up with Williams? Why did you go to McLaren? It wasn't all to do with money. Now, don't tell me that. I mean, it had to be a chance that you could win more races there. Yeah, look, my very first Grand Prix for Williams, I was paid £5,000, which I understand is a lot of money in the, the, the real world and real 
um, you know, a lot of people that would that would be life changing. But in, in sporting terms, that, that was a tiny drop. You know, that wasn't going to pay the donut bill for for the the team during the weekend. So it definitely wasn't for the money. It, it was about opportunity, and it was about you know competing at the highest level. But it is an issue in Formula One that you get a difference between the top teams and those at the back. The encouraging thing for me, if we go back a few races ago to Austria, there was less than a second, it's a short lap, but there was less than a second between uh, pole position and last on the grid. And that's the closest Formula One has been in a long time. And it was closer than Formula Two and Formula Three, and they're one make championships. So it just shows the difference that a combination of how the team runs the car. Like you came up, you built your business on one make championships or, or, or feeder championships where you would have more than one uh, team running the same chassis. So your guys had to do a better job building the car and presenting it to the driver to make a difference. The detail was so fine that when you were running a one make championship, it was all to do with the tiniest little bit of weight, the tiniest little bit of setup. And they're the things which I believe Ferrari do not have they because they never really got that. British teams, even we talk about Mercedes, but it's a British team. We talk about Aston Martin as a British team. All the teams that are based in Britain all have come up with that philosophy, David. And you're absolutely spot on because when you are used to racing under the finest of the finest detail, then you will get it right. And that's why Formula One, and you rightly say one second between the beginning, the front and the back, that was fantastic. But having said that, that wasn't the case at the end of the race where Max could come in and, 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 and do a quick, which I thought was mm, very, very, very nerve-wracking. If I had a team, I wouldn't have allowed it to happen. But anyway, the risk-reward was too high, 25 points to gain an extra one point. It was fantastic to see, and I want to applaud Max for doing it and the team, but nevertheless, I think it was foolhardy. Well, the risk was too much. I'll tell you another thing what I found remarkable. I'm going to share a little insight for you here. I went down and did the top three driver interviews. So I was standing just before the Red Bull garage in the pit lane with my back to the FIA garage door. And I'm standing there with a cameraman that will film the top three interviews. And it's traditional. You go there and you're in place ready for when the race finishes. And I see Max is coming down the pit lane. So I take my phone out. I thought, I'll take a wee video of a pit stop from my son. You know, it'd be a nice little thing he was watching in the in the in the pits. And um, Max came past, and I'll show you the video. Sadly, our listeners can't can't see it, but he went past about half a meter away from my feet. I couldn't go any further back. And he pulls into the the pit box. I film it, and I think, God, that was you know, that was a bit on the edge, a bit an edge. I, I feel like I'm maybe not in the right place here, and I am familiar with pit lane etiquette. Anyway, he goes on, wins the Grand Prix. I do the top three interviews. We finish our Channel 4 show. And I was flying back with Max um, to the south of France, um, back to Monaco. And he arrives at the plane because he's been doing some documentary filming. I'm already on the plane. And uh, he comes in and goes, did you like how close I got to you in the pit lane? And I went, so you knew it was me? He said, oh, yeah, I didn't need to go that close. I just wanted to, I just wanted to give you a little scare. But that's how, how good these he, How are. much capacity this guy? And I was like, well, how did you know it was me? He went, there's only one guy with white trousers and white hair that stands in the pit lane. <laughs> Uh, I think he has your measure taken, hasn't he? he? He has you in his sights. I'd be careful if I were you going out late at night in Monaco. Yeah, well, no, he, he's fully focused on winning his third world title. So let's move it on to uh, Rohan Wyme, who asks, it's one from EEJ, sorry, so you can stand down. If you put an average punt on an F1 car for the race distance, what would happen to them physically? And for the drivers, what's the main strength fitness thing to keep on top of? Well, here's the thing. 
um, okay, I'm 52 and I don't go to the gym anymore. Uh, I would last, well, I did it actually last year. I did a filming for um, a, a, a documentary where I jumped in uh, one of the, the V8 Formula One cars and did a single flying lap at Imola. And Max jumped in and did a single flying lap. Now, I should say, you know, I was 51 at the time. Uh, I didn't race Imola the last 15 years. I'm giving you all the excuses, okay? Come on, David, here, I'm, I'm listening. Thing. So his one flying lap versus my one flying lap, he was five seconds faster. So that shows... Well, I think he, you did well, because I, I was happy. I was happy. I, I can't believe you were no, that close. because, you know, given that I don't race anymore and therefore your mind goes into a different place, given that I don't have the needs to hang all out, but it just shows you the guy, it, it, he's a natural, of course he's a natural. But, so there's a thing, if I was to jump in a car now, maybe I could get that down to a couple of seconds off the pace, but there is no way I could do the same lap times as I used to do. One, just because of your, your decision-making capabilities. But physically, we all talk about the neck. You definitely need a strong neck to, to drive a Grand Prix car because you're pulling over 5G and braking and lateral load. But the other thing is the internal organs. When you're pulling G, your heart, your lungs, any, your stomach, anything that can move within the body yeah. does move. At that G. At that G. And that's why some people get nausea when they're in vehicles or aircraft. And that's the thing that you need to have developed your physical skills all the way up through the lower formulas. So a normal person would not last 10 laps in a Grand Prix. And I'm well, being generous at 10. It, it's, it's a good question. I understand it. And people want to know whether they're able to, you know, how good are these drivers? You talk about uh, your neck. I mean, you've never had a problem with neck, David. You've always had the hardest neck in the business. So, But anyway, leaving necks out of this. Um, you've got a breast neck. <laughs> you know, I, I remember sitting down at a charity thing and people criticized Roy Keane. Why don't you play? He only played for 10 minutes. And he said, because... I'm retired. I don't go to the gym. I don't train every day. I don't want to look like an idiot. I was able to play with anyone when I was on top form. But I'm, that's not my game anymore. Like TV is your game, being with the BRDC, being all sorts of different things that you do. That is your game now, same as my game is my game. And, you know, do I feel I'm fit when I'm playing the drums? I feel I'm absolutely on top of it, uh, as well as I can be. But, um, you know, what am I like? If I stop playing... I'd have to restart again because life, look, you can never, ever put fitness in the bank. Make sure if you're going to be a gym bunny, make sure you keep it going at a steady rate without making yourself weary or tired or whatever it is. But please do not think that these racing drivers, current ones, uh, can be uh, passed by other people on the street. It's not that case. So leading on from that, here's a question from Barry McGee for you. Um, he's a fellow Irishman and he said, I loved your book. Please do another one. He wants you to do another book. Excellent. Um, it could be a book, a book of lies or a book of half-truths. Uh, we think of a title. Well, there's none of it was ever true anyway. But anyway, <laughs> okay. go on, Barry. So um, his question for you is, have you ever taken any of your F1 cars for a spin over the years? The only ever time, uh, first of all, I'm not nostalgic and things like that. I do not have, um, you, you know, you go to David Coulthard's house, it's a shrine. He has every trophy that he ever won. He it has is. every every. Is that true? And your mother polishes them. And we have a little museum in Scotland. There so. you go. You see, folks, you heard it from me first. I'm completely the other end of the spectrum. Marie, my wife, who was an international basketball player, and so she understood about sport. And she said very clearly, when I come home in the evening after work, make sure you don't 
don't mention anything about your business or your past. Any trophy that... I, I just spoke to Andy Stevenson, who's the, the guy at Aston Martin. And I remember giving him the trophy that we won in by winning the Grand Prix in Italy because he asked particularly for it. And I was delighted to give it to him. And he keeps telling me and sends me photographs of it. And the reason is... I'm not a hoarder. I don't. That's my life. I've moved on. I'd much prefer to be seen with Alice Cooper or Mick Jagger or something like that, because that's my thing. Music is my thing. Um, whereas, you know, other people adore motoring. But the answer to the question is I did drive and I drove the Jordan, the green car. Gary Anderson and I, I wanted to give him a treat who was the guy who designed the car, the, the most wonderful, most practical designer des engineer that I've ever come across. And um, I gave him the car to drive up the hill at uh, Goodwood and uh, with Charlie March, Lord March. And that was something spectacular. And that was, I think, one of the very first years of Goodwood. And that's a treasure. I, I do remember that and I enjoyed it. Um, but remember, it was gear shift. It wasn't paddle like you. You've never driven a car with a gear shift and you come back with blisters, you know, the size of ball bearings on your hands, uh, if you know what I mean. And, uh, <laughs> you know, it was a tough world then. It but was. You, you ask Prost or any of those guys, they'll tell you, the gear change was so savage. Um, yeah. I did actually test. My, my first Formula One uh, car I tested was the 1990 uh, McLaren V12, and it was a manual gearbox. But I never raced a Formula One car with a manual, but I did in the lower formulas. Right, quick one moving on, because we're running out of time. This one's from Umar Riaz. Uh, on TikTok, and the question is, what becomes boring, if anything, when I was a Formula One driver? And the same question to you, EJ, when you were a, a team owner, what part of Formula One did you find a little bit boring? Um, it was just the non-stop attention. You love attention. Oh, what are you on. talking no, about? But, you know, you it live does, for it, it. It's a non-stop attention, but it's the same question every time. But look, remember how lucky we are. How lucky we are with the life, our health, our, our position, our families, everything that's going for us. You're talking about Dayton going to be, you know, stepping up a formula and doing racing because you've got a new life for him now and you're going to live some of your, that life through you. And I think that's very important is to remember that you're giving back, that you are giving back some of the benefits that you've received as a racing driver through to your family, through to your son, through to making sure that he has as good a chance as your parents gave you. And I think that's that's the maximum you can do. EJ, once again, I'm in this horrible position where I cannot say anything to take the mickey out of you. <laughs> you Wise can, words, don't worry. You nice man, you. Right, well, that's it for this, this uh, week's episode. When we come back in the future, I'm not going to be so nice, but Mr. Eddie Jordan, thank you. It's been a pleasure. Uh, well, as always, send in your questions to ffs at whisper.tv and don't forget to follow us on social media at f one for success. Until next time. Fantastic, David. I love this. Well I love, done. I love you. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen 
premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns.